Today's episode is sponsored by the John A. Hartford Foundation. For more than three decades, the John A. Hartford Foundation has worked to improve the care of older adults. The foundation is your central resource for developing policy around cost-effective, age-friendly health systems. Learn more at johnahartford.org. We're back with uh, breaking news in our politics lead. Uh, Moments ago, President Trump told reporters that he will decide sometime tonight whether or not to fire his Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, Dr. Tom Price. I've saved hundreds of millions of dollars, so I don't like the optics of what you just saw. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was a news report about the resignation of Tom Price, who had served as HHS Secretary through Friday, September 29th. And what began as one story by me and my colleague, Rachana Pradhan, spiraled into a scandal that Price and the White House ultimately could not get away from. Now, on this podcast, you'll hear me talk to Sue Desmond Hellman, the head of the Gates Foundation, someone who is a leader in global health and philanthropy, and really has nothing at all to do with Tom Price except for this one note. I was scheduled to go up to New York City and interview her on the first day when the story broke. We were putting the final touches on it. I stayed in D.C. We connected over Skype. So I'm glad to finally bring you this conversation 10 days after Sue and I had it. There might be a few dated references throughout. But first, I wanted to share just a peek into the process and the reporting that Rachana and I did over the past 10 days. There will be more to come next week. In a series of our reports, we tracked how Price began using charter flights after missing a commercial plane connection to California back in April. As it turned out, the commercial flight that got delayed and prevented him from getting to his event No planes were taking off. It was a tornado warning in Washington, D.C. Even charter jets wouldn't have left the ground. But still, after that day, Price began using charter jets even to go to Philadelphia, to Nashville, to California for official business, but often not for urgent public health priorities, such as appearing at conferences or even visiting his son along the way. The way that Rachan and I broke the story and covered it, I think, is worthy of its own conversation. I'm hoping to bring that to you on Pulse Check next week. But for now, I'm delighted to share this conversation with Sue Desmond Hellman. This was the day that Trump was up in New York at the United Nations, and that's where we kicked off our conversation. The president of the United States is at the United Nations today. He's talking about global engagement or in some cases, lack thereof. What does the America First strategy that the Trump administration has put forward mean for global public health? So um, as a a person who spends a lot of my time on global public health, um, America First is a challenge for us. Um, We in global public health think about... um, Uh, what matters for any human across the world matters for every human. And um, anybody who's lived through the Ebola epidemic or even um, the threat of Zika on, on particularly pregnant women and her unborn children knows that it is not possible in today's world to limit your thinking on global health to one country. And so uh, for me, um, I try and understand when someone says America first, what that means for Americans. 
Um, and my value proposition would be that Americans are safer if the world's health is better. After last year, when the Zika outbreak concerned Americans, are there notable measures of global public health, or at least the United States' contribution to global public health, that you think are concerning or alarming? Well, we don't know the answer to that yet. The original proposed budget uh, from the White House was one that cut foreign aid, and uh, we were deeply concerned by that. It turns out Congress was also deeply concerned by that. So we're monitoring the situation, but but the the actual amount that America spends on foreign aid matters very much to us, and, and early reads on that were very concerning. If the United States cuts back on global public health aid, is that a place where the Gates Foundation can step in and fill up the gap or are other foundations working with Gates? Or are we talking about a lack of engagement and a a funding cut that's impossible to replace with private foundations or even other countries? There's there's absolutely no way, and it should be crystal clear to people that the the U.S. is an extremely important funder of foreign aid. If you look at the data, um, it's less than 1% of the U.S. budget, but it is fundamentally massively important for foreign aid. So the U.S. funding will never be made up for by the Gates Foundation or others like us. If there's $37 billion in the world, of that uh, less than $3 billion, a little less than $3 billion comes from Gates Foundation, um, more than $12 billion comes from the U.S. It's exceptionally important for the world that the U.S. is a participant in foreign aid. Thinking about the United States health care efforts right now, so much attention is focused on Congress and the effort to repeal the ACA. I'm, I'm wondering, how does that affect your work and overall how the Gates Foundation perhaps views the state of the United States health care system? So uh, the Gates Foundation actually doesn't um, uh, participate in the U.S. healthcare dialogue or debate. We we only invest in health outside the U.S. Um, but the U.S. healthcare debate and the U.S. healthcare system matters a lot to us um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, we're a U.S.-based philanthropy. Our our staff, our employees, our colleagues, our community in Seattle or or in our office in Washington D.C. live in America, um, and we're Americans. So we have a lot of public health experts at the Gates Foundation, and we know how much access to health care and a healthy population drives the economy, drives good things for America. So, of course, we're interested in the U.S. health care debate. And I have to say that the disappointing aspect for me of the U.S. health care debate is, and, and this is how we think about global health, two central tenets of any health care system are access and affordability. And I would love to hear more about access and affordability in the congressional and national debate on health care. So do you think the average American healthcare wonk is missing some key elements of either global health or what makes public health work because of this overall focus on the legislative battle? Essentially, from your perch, where you're kind of a step away from the fight that is gripping Washington, D.C., you think access affordability, those issues are are going overlooked. Are there other things that need to be on the front burner for legislators in Washington, D.C. who might be listening to this podcast? 
Yeah, I have to say that one, I've loved getting re-involved in global health uh, since coming uh, to the Gates Foundation about three years ago. And let me give you an example. In Ethiopia, um, Cassette, the Minister of Health, who was the prior Minister of Health, started focusing on maternal mortality. Uh, nobody around the world would argue with the fact that no woman should die in pregnancy or during childbirth. That's a, that's a no-brainer, frankly. But in order to provide the kind of services that women need in Ethiopia, he had to think about forming what, what they ended up having a, a health development army, an army of volunteers who could help women understand how to have safe pregnancies and safe childbirth. That's a low-cost way to deliver services and get women to understand about having a birth, her birth in a facility to, to frankly save her life. It's uncommon in the U.S. that we think about a goal, maternal mortality, childhood mortality, um, uh, uh, having uh, the absence of obesity or diabetes, and we think about what's the most cost-effective, inclusive way to provide that service. It, I wish that legislators were more aware globally of the most productive Access and affordability is productivity. What's the most productive way for Americans to be healthy? That is a must-have conversation. If you're in Ministry of Health in Ethiopia, Nigeria, India, China, so there are many, many lessons that the U.S. healthcare system could take from the global dialogue. And and I wish our Congress, I wish actually our population were more demanding of access and affordability. What's what's one of those tactics right now that if you could get on a virtual soapbox and say this is what the U.S. healthcare system could implement and do tomorrow, and make healthcare better? What would that be? If I had a soapbox, uh, um, preventive services. And you do. You're the head of the Gates Foundation. You have one of the biggest soapboxes <laughs> in the world when it comes to healthcare. Well, I'm talking to you. You're giving me a soapbox, so thank you for that. The so I'm a public health person. I I, I uh, have a master's in public health from UC Berkeley, and I'll be true to my school. It, it, it is inarguable that making accessible and either free or very very cheap preventive health services. So access to family planning, access to vaccines, access to services like colonoscopy that prevent colon cancer. It is very, very expensive to fix problems once they occur and much more cost-effective and productive to provide for government to provide preventive services for all Americans. That would be my soapbox. Do we know that, though? I mean, there's been all this focus on prevention as part of the ACA of dealing with chronic disease in America. Isn't there the counterargument that if you're preventing a serious illness and saving someone's life, that person may then need ongoing therapy, care, drugs, whatever it might be, and the total cost can be fairly significant compared to an early, uh, early death, which is obviously not preferable. But if you're talking about cost for society, can't prevention be extremely costly too? So I, I think that there are two different dialogues. One is keeping someone alive, um, frankly, at, at, at some point when their quality of life is poor and there, there is a valid debate about end-of-life care. 
And, and I think that's a valid debate that needs to include patients themselves on what their desires would be. There's a whole part of the medical curriculum that I'm very positive about, about having the right kind of end-of-life discussion so that we don't spend 80% of the funds on the last several months of life. I think that's a valid discussion that is fundamentally different than making sure that all women have access to family planning when she wants it, that all children have safe and effective vaccines that can prevent illnesses, um, that all people have access to the best information about nutrition, diet, exercise, so that we promote wellness. Promoting wellness for me is inarguable. Um, End-of-life care is a valid debate, particularly in an aging population. Let's, let's talk about what the Gates Foundation has prioritized. You've alluded to some of this already, childhood mortality, maternal mortality, and then there's confronting some of the world's worst diseases, TB, malaria, HIV, AIDS. What is the biggest challenge, global disease-wise, that the Gates Foundation still feels like is, is not solvable in the next year's ahead. So so if we had a top five, I would give you a top five that are extremely important. And we look at global burden of disease. We look at why people die and what causes the greatest number of deaths and disability in the world. So HIV AIDS remains a terrible problem. And we, the world needs an AIDS vaccine. Malaria, tuberculosis, diarrheal diseases, and pneumonia are exceptionally important to the Gates Foundation. In addition, we believe that the world is on the brink of eradicating only the second disease ever. So smallpox was eradicated in the late 70s, and the second disease that we think can be eradicated is polio. And so while the burden of polio, because we're at the end game, is small, the world will be better off if we get rid of polio. Do you have a big party planned at Gates Foundation headquarters when polio is eradicated? The world is entitled to have a big party when polio is eradicated. It, it, now, for, for that to be established, you have to go three years without a case of wild polio. So it, it will be the passage of time. But I can tell you that, that you want to be at that party. <laughs> um, if, if there's one thing I remember learning, Sue, about foundations, it's that so many of them are inefficient that the administrative costs can be high, that maybe their mission isn't square on, on target. Does it make sense to have so many different foundations in the philanthropic and, and charitable world? Why don't we all just give to the Gates Foundation? So, so I'm, I'm actually excited about the future of philanthropy, and I'll tell you why. Um, the, it's okay with me for there to be many uh, foundations. Each foundation is fundamentally different. You might have a foundation that's focused on your local community, on education, health, uh, the environment, uh, city parks. Um, it, it has been the tradition of American philanthropy for there to be a ton of diversity in interest and um, in in the, the causes that a foundation cares about. And I think that's great. I actually think too much concentration might not be uh, a positive. What's great about the Gates Foundation is Bill and Melinda's commitment to accountability and metrics. And particularly in the world of philanthropy, but also in global development and in educational philanthropy that, that is our US uh, focus, 
this, this focus on accountability and metrics on getting things done is healthy for our foundation and, and I frankly think is contagious. So it, we're not the only ones in the foundation world, in the philanthropic world, who are looking at metrics and data and accountability. And so we learn from others and hopefully we influence others. But our goalkeepers report that we came out with uh, last week, our goalkeepers um, uh, assembly that we're doing tomorrow here at the, at the UN in New York, is all about celebrating progress, but also pushing ourselves to say, look, great that we've had progress in the last 25 years, but the world will not meet its goals for 2030 without a big push on accountability and getting things done. And for me, having come from private industry, you know, I was 16 years in pharma and biotech. I love at, I was at Genentech, and, and I, people always tease me that I love the quarterly earnings calls. Um, I think that's probably says something about me. <laughs> might not be a good thing. But we have absolute focus on our goals and the world's goals and how we achieve those. And I think that's a very healthy thing for the not-for-profit world. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll get back to the conversation with Sue in a moment. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. A message from the John A. Hartford Foundation. Healthcare for older adults in America needs to change. Poor quality healthcare harms older patients, causes families to suffer, and waste money. The John A. Hartford Foundation believes that older adults should receive high-value, evidence-based healthcare that treats people with respect and dignity and meets their goals and preferences. For more than 35 years, the John A. Hartford Foundation has built a field of experts in aging and health and has committed to making more than 1,000 U.S. hospitals age-friendly by 2020. The John A. Hartford Foundation and its subject matter experts are a nonpartisan resource for developing policy around cost-effective, value-based, age-friendly health systems, providing the tools you need to improve the care of older adults. Learn more at johnahartford.org. Warren Buffett has given to the Gates Foundation. So clearly, your your message resonates not just with the average American, but also the wealthiest, too. If, if I'm taking one point away from how you think about foundations, should they all have something like the goalkeepers report or these very clear metrics that the foundation says it's going to hit? And if it doesn't hit, it holds itself accountable. Absolutely. If there's one single wish I would have uh, in the not-for-profit world, it is the translation of great intentions and generosity into measurable outcomes that everyone, everyone working at the foundation, all the collaborators that that always work together with the not-for-profit world can look at as the goals. So I actually love the name goalkeepers. Um, it, all great people and, and working with Warren, with Bill, with Melinda, it is, it is not surprising that they are as, um, uh, as successful as they've been because they're really clear about what they want to achieve and they're very open and honest when we've achieved the goals or we're on track for the goals and when we're not on track. So I think there's not... Um, that inarguably is good for anybody who aspires to create change in the world. Um, be really clear what you're trying to do and then measure it. 
Foundations were a big part of the political news the past few years. The, the Clinton Foundation was scrutinized. The Trump Foundation was in the news for perhaps not being so charitable. Is there something that you know as head of a foundation about how the media covered those other foundations? Some story that was missed. Gosh, there was a lot of uh, ink spilled on, on those. You know, it's, it's interesting. For me, the, 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 um, the most important thing that, that I would ask, and I think if there was something that was missed, it is there's a lot of um, focus in foundations about the process of how a foundation works, where the money comes from, um, a lot of discussion of that. And I'm, I'm pro-free press. I think, I think sunlight is, is a good disinfectant in general. We're, we're grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I think we agree on that. But here's the thing for me is, and, and where I focused at the Gates Foundation, when I first came three years ago, and, and I haven't stopped this focus on stewardship, so what do we spend, and impact, what do we get done? I think people under uh, overstate how much overhead, how much foundations spend, they tend to overstate that, particularly on overhead, and they underfocus on impact. I would rather have a foundation that's a, that's not perfectly efficient. Let's say your overhead, you're trying for an overhead of 15%, and you're at 17%, but you are hitting it out of the park on getting things done. Um, as is true in a company. You can run really lean and starve a company and get nothing done, and you're no hero. For me, I ask anybody working at a foundation or at a company, what have you accomplished? And so I, I, I think in those stories in the press about foundations and in a lot of coverage about foundations, there is an overfocus on overhead and an underfocus on impact. Did the Clinton Foundation get things done? Did, did it make a positive impact on the world? We partner with uh, um, the, the um, parts of the Clinton Foundation that particularly work in sub-Saharan Africa. Our experience with CHAI, which is the Clinton Health uh, Access Initiative, has been very positive. They get things done. Did you ever partner with the Trump Foundation on anything? Um, I'm not aware of the Gates Foundation partnering with the Trump Foundation ever. I'm, I'm not aware of that either. Just wrapping up, Sue, I, I wanted to talk quickly about how you got to where you are. You mentioned this earlier. You were a practicing physician. You were at UCSF at, at Genentech. What has the learning curve been like to take on the reins of the world's most prominent foundation? Well, it's it's been uh, fantastic in every way and humbling. You know, I'm a I'm an oncologist. I'm a cancer doctor and a scientist and a researcher. And so um, changing from uh, academia to industry, back to academia, and now to the foundation, the, the most important thing for me has been to understand how we make an impact in the world. What are the means, whether it's advocacy, investment, whether it's in the public sector, the private sector, with academia, governments, industry, what I've wanted to do and feel like I'm still on my learning curve is figure out how we make a difference. Um, what's not different from any job I've had as a leader is working on great talent. We have 1,500 wonderful employees at the Gates Foundation and working on culture. In the end, what all the jobs I've had have in common 
is thinking about how the organization can bring out the best in people who work with it or for it. And um, we've been on a culture journey at the Gates Foundation. Um, and so I can bring the skills I have as a leader and a manager uh, to the job in that way. And that's been incredibly inspiring and positive. Let's say someone listening to this conversation wants to work at the Gates Foundation. I mean, you were not in the philanthropic world full time until just the past couple of years. Does it make more sense to try and go directly into foundation work in a person's 20s or, or 30s or kind of come more circuitously after having practical hands-on experience like you as a scientist, a researcher, a physician, maybe something else? I don't think there's one right way to get to the Gates Foundation. So we're happy to have people early in their career, and we're happy to have people at the end of their career. It's, it, it, we're like any great organization. We like to have a diversity of background and experience. I will tell any student who asks me, be great at something, have a set of technical capabilities and competencies that you'll bring to any organization, whether it's for-profit, not-for-profit, academia, government. So, so skills acquisition, and as people like to call it, learning to learn, um, is extremely important. But, but we want people at the Gates Foundation who have capabilities and skills that can help us make an impact on the world, whether that's you know, anything from coding to science to advocacy to communication. Um, what, what is important for any learner today is, is to gain skills and competencies that you can put to work in an organization. And so whether you're 20 or 60, I would say the same thing. Last question. What do you know about Bill and Melinda Gates now that you work with them so closely that you didn't know before? They are both exceptionally funny. Uh, they're very, very family-oriented. They, they absolutely dote on and love their three kids and the rest of their extended family. Um, and, and the most important thing is they are much more resilient than just about anybody I've ever worked with. They can, they can face um, setbacks in all the really tough problems we're trying to solve. And their capability of dusting themselves off and together with both Gates Foundation and the rest of the world, they are relentless about accomplishing what we've set out to do. Probably more resilient than any two human beings I've ever worked with. Well, I, I want to thank you, Sue, for being resilient as we connected multiple times over, over FaceTime and phone. You're welcome. That's it for Paul's Check today. My thanks to Sue Desmond-Hillman and Gabby Stern at the Gates Foundation, Bridget Mulcahy for going to New York without me and recording the podcast intro and outro on a busy Friday afternoon. You can find Pulse Check on all your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And you'll find a new Pulse Check in your podcast player next week. <laughs>